Over the last month, under pressure from protesters around the country, cities have made major changes to their police departments. They've reduced budgets, banned certain policing practices, and asked police to be more transparent about use of force complaints. All of a sudden, in the wake of these protests, you're just seeing these policy achievements in city after city after city that some of these groups have been pushing for for years. In many instances with no traction, in some instances with a little traction. And now it's sort of like the dominoes are falling one after another, and they're getting all of these significant policy wins. Our colleague Ariane Campo-Flores has been reporting on these policy shifts. And he says that while these changes have happened suddenly, a lot of the work to make them happen has been going on for years under a banner you've heard chanted from the streets. We hear about Black Lives Matter so much, it's become such a common expression. But I think that there's not really a deep understanding of what the actual movement has done. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, June 18th. Coming up on the show, how years of work by Black Lives Matter groups has prepared them for this moment. This episode is brought to you by Canva. When your work looks good, you look good. So create all the stunning presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos you need with Canva. Start with one of the designer-made templates or jump ahead with the power of AI. It's a real time saver and anybody can use it. Whatever department you work in, whatever you need, Canva will help you get it done and make it look fantastic. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. Tap the banner to learn more. When Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 after the killing of Trayvon Martin, it was built on a unique theory of leadership. So it was founded originally by three women, Patrice Cullors, Elisa Garza, and Opal Tometi. And they created the original group that was called Black Lives Matter. The founders were very intentional in saying that they wanted the movement to be a decentralized movement. And they wanted to sort of unleash that and have many leaders in many cities around the U.S., Why did they want that kind of leaderless, sort of more organic structure? They felt that the traditional structure of organizations, male-dominated, hierarchical, with like one sort of central voice of authority, were not effective. That there would be more effective having a movement that had many leaders. This movement of many leaders really picked up momentum after Michael Brown was shot by police in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. As protesters clashed with police, Black Lives Matter groups pushed for major reforms, nationally and at a local level. And so over time, you just have scores of new groups that emerged that really focused a lot on the local work, developing policies, establishing lobbying efforts, developing relationships with local elected officials that tackled a wide variety of issues that fall under racial justice. And it was driven by the local concerns and local considerations of people in cities and counties around the country, that they knew what the 
priorities were. They knew how best to approach it. They knew how best to develop an agenda. And they should be their own leaders and not be taking marching orders from some central figure in a faraway city. You know, I've, I've never been a fan of the cookie-cutter approach. Chaz Moore is one of those local leaders. He's the executive director of the Austin Justice Coalition, a group that's not officially a Black Lives Matter chapter, but is aligned on the same goals. Right, like what works in New Orleans may not work in Austin. What works in Houston may not work in Austin. You know, we all have different laws and governance, so the work has to start locally in a way that, you know, makes sense to where we sleep, eat, and live, and play. Before you started the organization, can you describe what the relationship was like in Austin between police and members of the Black community? Oh, it's always been bad. (laughs) You know, uh, there's a long history of police violence in the Black community here in Austin. So it's always been like this really tense relationship, if that's even the word, between the Black community and APD. Mm-hmm. What do you mean tense, if that's even the word? What might be a better word? <laughs> like tumultuous? Mm-hmm. Um, or I just, I literally, I'll never forget this. We we had a town hall meeting with the police chief, and I literally get up in front of this huge group of people, look at the chief in his eyes and tell him, like, you know, he can go to hell and he should quit. So, wow. you know, but I was I was young, right? I was, you know, however many years ago that was, I was young and I was upset, which I'm still upset. I just go about things a little bit different. Chaz has pivoted his approach since then and started focusing on specific reforms. In 2016, his group set out to change one thing in particular, the police union contract, which was up for renegotiation. You have to remove the obstacles in police union contracts in order for all the policy and all the other stuff to actually be able to to happen, right? You can't have this policy that talks about discipline if the police union contract says you can only discipline the officer this type of way. But to push for changes to that contract, they first had to know what was being negotiated. Negotiations between the city and the police union were actually open meetings. Anyone from the public could go and listen in. So that's exactly what Chaz did. For 18 months, it was just this huge project to where, you know, we had to go to these meetings that were from like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. to sometimes. All we can do is sit there and take notes. Chaz would take those notes back to his organization. And based on what was happening in the negotiations, they'd come up with proposals for what they wanted to see adjusted. It was coming up with a condensed list of demands. You know, we started out with like a list of 18 or 20 demands. We knew 20 was too much. So we were able to narrow that down to eight. Chaz and his group lobbied the city council to incorporate those demands into the negotiations. But when the first draft of the agreement came out... It had none of our demands in it, and it had this high price tag on it. This was a big blow, but it wasn't their last chance. The city council still had to vote on the drafted agreement. So Chaz drummed up support from the community to show up at the city council meeting in December of 2017 and ask them to vote no. We had over 100 people come out and testify at City Hall for like hours. Vote no. Hit reset, rebuild our systems in more accountable ways that respect our police, respect our citizens, and respect our wallets. Which led to this historic no vote. It is unanimous on the diet. (laughs) And then the union was like, we're going to walk away from the table. And we was like, whatever, nobody cares. And we, excuse my French, we kicked their ass. And they know (laughs) we did, so it's okay. Police walked away and worked without a contract for about a year. 
But eventually, they came back to the table and agreed to a new contract, one that included some of the reforms Chaz had been pushing for. Citizens could now file anonymous complaints, and there would be an independent oversight board. I think that was pretty dope to see a community come together and fight for something collectively. But we also realized, like, that reform and policies are not going to fix the problems with policing. It was definitely something that we set in for, like, maybe a day or two. But then, you know, we don't celebrate those type of victories too long because it's just constant work. These fights are happening in cities around the U.S. But not every group has seen the kind of success that Austin has, like in Minneapolis. National focus has been on Minneapolis in the wake of George Floyd's killing. But Black Lives Matter activists started pushing for reforms there years ago, especially after police killed two black men, Jamar Clark and Philando Castile, in 2015 and 2016. Here's Ariane. And it really came out of that period that you saw the creation of a number of local groups there. One group was called MPD 150. And that group was more of a research organization that sought to analyze the 150-year history of the Minneapolis Police Department, which is what gave the group its name. And they generated a report that detailed a long history, in their view, of police violence against minorities in the city. And their conclusion that the report came to is that this was not a police department that could be really reformed. It was a police department that needed to be fundamentally overhauled, basically taken down and redone from scratch. That idea in Minneapolis three years ago was ambitious. But over the following years, several more Black Lives Matter groups sprung up in the city and started working towards it, pressuring city officials to chip away at the police budget. They launched an effort aimed at the city council to reduce the police department's budget and redirect some of those funds to other programs, to social programs. And in 2018, they lobbied the city council really intensely, regularly attending their meetings, speaking up when there were opportunities for public input. Community members are literally asking for crumbs compared to the city's police budget. Fund our communities, not cops. They would circulate petitions online through social media and present those. They would deliver material to city council members' homes. They at one point projected a video of one of the young black men who had been killed in recent years onto the house of the mayor. And eventually, this pressure campaign looked like it was starting to work. The city council agreed to redirect some money from the police budget to social programs and created a new office of violence prevention. This was all seen as a big win locally, but... It was a small amount. It was $1 million out of a $184 million police budget. That was far short of what they would have wanted. Now, what's interesting is that the following year, they did ask for more, but they got less. There was an allocation that was roughly $240,000 that was earmarked from the police budget to this Office of Violence Prevention and these social programs. The efforts seemed to be losing steam. And this wasn't the only Black Lives Matter group going through this kind of cycle. In a different city, about 2,000 miles away, another Black Lives Matter group was hitting a wall, too. Until suddenly, everyone started paying attention. That's after the break.
This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at C3.ai. Welcome back. Since George Floyd was killed three weeks ago, cities have made a sudden shift to adopt new policing policies— A good example of how quickly local governments have become receptive to change is in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, Black Lives Matter activists were going through a lot of the same things that Minneapolis was. They'd been pressuring city government to defund the police and use that money instead to fund social services. They'd even drafted a, quote, people's budget with input from thousands of Angelinos. But that effort had essentially gone nowhere until the end of May. Thousands of protesters filled the streets demanding change. And the local Black Lives Matter chapter had exactly the thing for them to push for. It increasingly became common to hear the refrain, defund the police, at these rallies. Black Lives Matter and other groups drew attention again to the effort that they had put into creating this people's budget, this alternative budget. And then there was one demonstration in particular that they held in front of Mayor Eric Garcetti's home in Los Angeles that drew thousands of people. And the following morning, some council members produced a resolution that they introduced that called for reallocating of $150 million from the police budget to social programs. And later that day, the mayor got on board as well and said that he was advocating something similar, the reallocating of up to $250 million of police spending to community programs. What did the activists who'd been pushing for the people's budget say about this moment? I spoke to a woman named Melina Abdullah, who is the co-founder of the LA chapter of Black Lives Matter. And she put it very succinctly. What she said was that the protests over George Floyd's killing advanced their cause with the people's budget by leaps and bounds. And she said that it turned this wonky budget conversation into a rallying cry. Did any city officials that you talked to say anything about how abrupt this change was? Yeah, I spoke to one city council member named Curran Price, who has been receptive to the priorities and the proposals that have been put forth by Black Lives Matter and other groups. But what he told me is that the political context was different. And when the protests erupted, things did change. And he said that their demands took on a new urgency that they did not have prior. Mm -hmm. And that opened the way for the city council to really take those demands much more seriously and to give them a hearing before the city council and to really change the tenor of the debate over the budget. 
The debate took on a new tenor, especially in the place where George Floyd was killed, Minneapolis. In Minneapolis, these groups stepped up immediately their lobbying campaigns to defund the police department and very quickly pivoted as the protests gathered steam to push for that. And they had already established relationships with many of these city council members through all of this previous work. And what we've seen was a really significant move by the city council, which was to vote recently to just entirely disband the police department, to create a new public safety system drawing on the input of the public. Chaz from the Austin Justice Coalition is also finding new enthusiasm for the reforms he's been pushing. Before these current protests, his group was also facing an uphill battle, trying to get the city council to take money from the police budget and put it towards community programs. But last week, the city council approved a measure to figure out how to actually do that. So how important do you think the work was that you were doing before this moment? Extremely, because we built the relationships with the community, the power structure, if you will. I think it just laid a really good foundation for us to be in a space to where city council is hopefully comfortable rethinking public safety and hopefully reallocating some dollars away from APD. All this work that was happening at the local level, these local chapters, it's, it's like they were digging the channels that then when the dam broke and when everybody started protesting and there was all this tension and all this emotion behind it, that those channels that they had dug created a, a place for that water to flow. Yeah, I think that's right. These groups at the local level were able to say, okay, you want to take action on this? This is the action that you should take. This is what the agenda should be. It should be severely restricting use of force. It should be severely cutting back the police department's budget and redirecting that funding to social programs. And it should be, in some cases, the actual disbanding of the police department and starting from scratch to create a new form of public safety. And I really think that it is this combination of a groundswell of support for changes, for profound changes in how policing is done and how police departments function and are funded, and years of groups at the local level developing these policies, pushing these agendas, laying the groundwork in ways that were really largely out of the public view, in many ways were kind of thankless, tedious work, but really laid a foundation for all of a sudden to see that work gain fruition because of the opening that was created. That's all for today, Thursday, June 18th. Additional reporting in this episode by Joshua Jamerson. We're off tomorrow for Juneteenth and we'll be back on Monday. So here's our weekly credits. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. The show is made by Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Annie Minoff, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rostrasser, and Rob Zipko. Our show is engineered by Griffin Tanner with help from Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. 
Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Peter Leonard, Billy Libby, Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.